sermon text for this morning is found in Luke chapter 3. If you want to continue to hold me account, the text is found on page 1020 of your pew Bible, Luke chapter 3. Only two verses here, we'll jump into Matthew here in a little bit and look at some more information, but Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, the baptism of Jesus. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Flip with me in your Bible just back to chapter 1 as you've got it open, and and I want to remember Luke's purpose statement for this whole gospel. This is chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, this is Luke writing to Theophilus, and as much As many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught." Luke opens up his gospel, his letter to Theophilus, and he says, the reason why I'm writing these things down is that you may have confidence and certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so he goes around and he's taking eyewitness testimony about the life of this person, Jesus Christ. And so, so far through these two chapters, we have seen many, many testimonies about this reality of who Jesus is as the Son of God. And you can Quickly, you look through here. We've got the witness of Gabriel, the testimony of Gabriel to Zechariah and to Mary. We have the testimony of Zechariah himself. We have the testimony of Elizabeth and of Mary. We have the testimony of the angels as they say to the shepherds in their fields, watching their sheep by night, their flocks by night. They have the testimony from them of the birth of this Savior, and they go and see this baby. We have the testimony going on of Simeon and Anna as Jesus is presented at the temple. We have the testimony of Mary and Joseph that they name him Jesus as the angel told them to. And we have all of these testimonies and Luke is just bringing a bunch of information in, eyewitness testimony, things that had happened, bringing them all in to make clear to us who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God. He is God incarnate. He is Emmanuel, God with us. We asked the question when at this the section of Jesus at the temple, we had said, this is what everyone else says about this child, but then we asked, what does this child have to say about himself, right? So everyone says this is who the child is, but who does the child think he is? And we see here at age 12, Jesus in the temple says, how did you not know, or did you not know, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And we see that the child says God, he speaks of God in this very unique way, not as our father, but as my father. The child begins to understand in his natural mind that he is, in fact, the son of God. That, and this is his testimony about himself. John the Baptist, we saw his testimony last week, 
And we have two more testimonies before we get into Jesus' ministry in, in Luke chapter 4. Next week, get excited for this one, we're going to talk about the genealogy of Jesus. And so this passage that you always skim through when you're reading the Bible, uh, on down in chapter 3, we're going to work through that next Sunday. And so get excited for that. That's the testimony of his genealogy. But here, this is kind of this big final testimony before we get to Jesus' line of descent. And it is a testimony not of all the witnesses, not of the child himself, but it is the testimony of the Godhead. It is the testimony of God about who this person is. From, not from an angel, not speaking through Gabriel, not speaking through the heavenly host, not speaking out of the mouth just of the child, but a voice from heaven giving testimony. This is who the child is. We've asked, what does the child say? What does God say about this one who has been born and surrounded by all these miraculous events? So just three things we're looking at this morning out of these two verses. The first is the act itself of Jesus' baptism. The second is this interesting thing of the Holy Spirit descending in bodily form like a dove onto Jesus. And the third thing is this voice from heaven. So the first thing we have to look at is this reality of baptism. Jesus shows up to John the Baptist and submits himself to this baptism. It is a baptism of repentance. John has been declaring, we went through this last week, that everyone, not just Gentiles, Gentiles were often baptized as they converted into Judaism. It was proselyte baptism. They'd take Gentiles and they would say their need for a Savior. They'd repent. They would go down into the waters and be baptized. But John was calling for a baptism not just for the Gentiles, but for everybody. The people who thought they were the in crowd, the religious elites, were having to confess through this baptism that they were sinners in need of saving. And so Jesus shows up and he submits himself to this baptism. And it makes us ask the question, why did Jesus go get baptized? Why did, and Luke doesn't really address this issue. He's not so concerned with the act of the baptism as much as with the voice. The, the main clause, we could go to grammar school, but we don't need to. The main clause in this passage is the, the voice, the word coming from this voice from heaven. But Luke also maybe doesn't include it as well because we have accounts in other Gospels of why Jesus did this. So if you still have your Bible out, a couple of books back, the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of your New Testament, John the Baptist, this baptism is recorded in all four Gospels. But here in Matthew chapter 3 uh, is Matthew's recording of the Gospel of this, of this uh, instance. And he gives some more detail into what's going on. And so we're going to jump into Matthew just for a little bit here to try to answer the question, why is Jesus getting baptized? Is Jesus a sinner in need of repentance and baptizing? No, he is not. I'll just answer that question flat out. No, it is clear all through Luke that he is the Holy One. He is the one who is sinless. We go to Hebrews chapter 4, talking about Jesus Christ was without sin. He had no need to repent. Why does he submit himself to this? Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So John the Baptist, when Jesus shows up, uh, at first doesn't recognize him. We learn from the Gospel of John because he hadn't been around him much. But he eventually says, you're, I need to be, you're the one who's coming after me. 
you're up here and I'm down here. There's no reason why I should baptize you. You should be baptizing me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And then we have basically the rest of the story that we get from the Gospel of Luke. But Jesus, these are the first words out of the mouth of Jesus since age 12 that we have recorded in our Bible. These are the first recorded words we have from our Savior since age 12 till now age 30. And the words are this, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus here tells us that the reason for his baptism was because, and we read this in the Gospel of John chapter 1, John the Baptist had received a direct revelation, a word from God in the wilderness that he is to go out and baptize people. That, that God had spoken that this, the prophet of God, when a prophet speaks, he speaks the word of God. He speaks for God himself. And John the Baptist had this direct revelation from God that the people of Israel, to fulfill all righteousness, to be just under the law, to complete all of their good works, needed to go through this baptism of repentance. John, John heard, John the Baptist heard directly from God to perform these baptisms. He received this direct revelation that the people of God were to partake in a confession of their sinfulness and their repentance symbolized by baptism. Now, Jesus has no sin, but as we see in Galatians chapter 4, Jesus is born of woman, born under the law, that he can fulfill the law. Jesus uh, submits himself under the law. He submits himself under God's holy declaration. Jesus also would have partook of the Passover feast. He would have gone and they would have, they would have sacrificed the lamb and roasted its meat and ate it, prepared the, the Seder dinner or whatever they've got. They would have, Jesus would have partook of that, yet he has no need to be forgiven of his sin. He's without sin. But he was doing it, he would do those things because they were prescribed for the children of Israel to do. And so Jesus shows up and he fulfills the law perfectly. Jesus shows up, he, com- he perfectly completes every act that God has decreed his people to do. This is, as we talked about a few weeks ago, this is Christ's active obedience. This is Christ's active obedience. It, Christ has two ways that he's obedient. He has passive obedience and active obedience. And the passive obedience of Christ is the things that he suffered. And when we see Jesus going to the cross, that's nothing that he is doing. That is a passive obedience. God has decreed this to be done, and he receives it. He has this passive obedience. He receives the sinfulness of mankind upon himself in passive obedience. But if if passive obedience was all that was needed to save us, we make the argument Jesus could have came down from heaven on Friday as a grown man, died on the cross, come up to raise, raise the life on Sunday, ascend back in heaven. He's only gone a weekend. But yet what we have is Jesus spends 30 years on earth. Why? Why does Jesus spend 30 years on earth? Thus it is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. And what Jesus is doing that full 30 years is doing everything we all should have done but failed to do. He's perfectly obedient as a, as a, as a child. He's perfectly obedient as a, as a teenager, folks. <laughs> Going through junior high without sin, perfectly obedient. 
all the way up into adulthood, grows and he's working for his father as a carpenter likely, and is obedient all the way along. Why is he doing that? Why is he fulfilling this righteousness? At the core of Christianity is not just a Savior who suffers and takes your sin away from you, but he is also a Savior who that when you put your faith in him, you are cleansed from your sin, and big word, you are imputed with his righteousness. You are given his righteousness. It's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin, that being Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we could be the righteousness of God. Double imputation, the great exchange, that Christ for 30 years is earning the blessing of God. He's earning the blessing of God, perfectly fulfilling everything God has asked him to do. And yet, we see him go to the cross. Galatians 3 says he is, he's put under the curse. We see the one who deserves the blessing of God given the curse. So that all of us sitting here who deserve the curse could have their curse laid on him and receive the blessing of God adopted into his family as his dear children. So Jesus goes, we learn from the Gospel of Matthew, to be baptized because it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus goes down into the waters, submits himself to a prophet of God because he's earning your merits. He's earning our merits, the very core of Christianity. Do not forget that not only does Jesus suffer for your sins in your place, but by faith in his name, his perfect record is credited to your account so that all who have repented of their sins and trusted in Christ are forgiven. But not only is their account brought up to no debt, their account is credited with perfect righteousness. It's like going to the bank and you know you're 20 grand, your bank account's overdrawn. And you go in there and, and the imputation of your debt to Christ is like you go in there and they say, you know what, you have no debt. You're, you're at zero. And that's great news. But then you walk out with zero dollars and you go to the, the grocery store, all of a sudden you're back in debt. It doesn't take long to, to get back on the negative side. But when Christ comes in, he doesn't just take away this debt. He doesn't just forgive the sin, but he imputes perfect righteousness. Such that when, when you put your faith in Christ in the Lamb's book of life that's recorded in heaven somewhere, it doesn't just say no debts. It says perfect obedience through the work of the Savior so that your justification, your right standing with God is not based upon your performance, but on the performance of this Savior in his passive obedience and his active obedience. This is the outstanding blessing when Ephesians 1 talks about how we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is what it's talking about, given the righteousness that Christ earns. So, so Christ goes to the baptism to fulfill all righteousness. But that's not Luke's main point. Luke's main point, moving on, is in this voice. We have the act of the Son, and then we have the Holy Spirit show up. So just as a side note, this is one of the, one of the clearest places where we see our Trinitarian monotheistic religion. So Christianity is Trinitarian and it's monotheistic. We have mono, meaning one, theistic, theism, God. We have one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. We have one God. But we also have a Trinitarian monotheism in that this, this one God exists, one in essence, but three in person. And right here we have all three persons of the Trinity active. We have the Son going down into the water. 
we have the Holy Spirit descending in bodily form like a dove and the voice of heaven, the Father, speaking. All three members of this Trinity as one God working in this passage. And so we have the sun going down into the waters of baptism, which is how baptism is done. It's not a tough sell here in this church, but we baptize by immersion. So we go down into the water and we come back up out of the waters as Jesus did. He comes back up out of the waters. The heavens are open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Okay, so the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. Why does the Holy Spirit come upon Jesus? It's not that Jesus has been without the Holy Spirit. Like it's... um. There's, there's lots of heresy you could get into talking about this is when Jesus finally becomes the Son of God. The Holy Spirit descends. Jesus has lived a perfectly sinless life. He has had the Holy Spirit all along. What we see at this baptism is the Holy Spirit coming on Jesus for special service. He has come upon Jesus for a special service. If, if John the Baptist is filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb, who is just the forerunner of the Messiah... How much more would Christ, who is in, in the virgin womb of his mother, carry the Holy Spirit with him the whole time? We see this many times in the Old Testament. Let me run through them for you. The Holy Spirit came on Moses that, for the duty that God had for him. The Holy Spirit came on Joshua in Numbers chapter 27. The Holy Spirit descended in Numbers 11 on the 70 elders. The book of Judges, the Holy Spirit comes on Athenial. The Holy Spirit comes upon Gideon in Judges 6.34. Holy Spirit comes on Jephthah. Holy Spirit comes on Samson. It comes upon Saul. It comes on David. It comes on all sorts of into the kings. It comes on Elijah. It comes on Azariah and Micah and Zechariah. And the Holy Spirit in Ezekiel on chapter 2 it comes upon Ezekiel. And it comes upon Daniel and Daniel chapter 4. The Holy Spirit opening up and coming down to anoint someone for a special service. So the Holy Spirit here in this instance is recognizing and verifying Jesus and his mission as the Son of God. In Isaiah 42.1, it's an interesting passage. Likely this is what uh, their, their, they, their minds would go to when they read this and, and hear this telling of this event. Isaiah 42 verse 1 says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. In fulfillment of this word from Isaiah, written hundreds of years earlier, we see Jesus at his baptism going down into the waters to fulfill all righteousness, coming up, the Holy Spirit descending on him in a bodily form, some form. He doesn't come down like a dove. He comes down in a bodily form, and he flitters down, or flutters down, or whatever, like a dove would land upon a perch. You know, so the, the contrast is he doesn't come on Jesus like a duck. Or a grasshopper. You see how a duck or a grasshopper lands? It's not the least graceful thing, unless they glide. But like a grasshopper, as I carry the mail, right? They, they never land on anything. Grasshoppers jump, and they have no idea. They just get to hit the ground or hit you or whatever, or a car, and they flop on the ground. That's not graceful. And, you know, a duck just comes barreling in and crashes into the water. Dove, though, you know how a dove lands, right? They, they flap their wings, and they come down, and they, they land softly on their perch. And this is what the Holy Spirit, in some sort of a form, lands upon Jesus. It doesn't come and strike Jesus. It doesn't come and possess Jesus. It doesn't come and knock him over, anything like, anything like that. In a very gentle, affirming uh, way, this spirit comes down in a positive disposition towards Christ, 
comes down and lands on him, hovering slowly, gracefully, gently, and softly, affirming that the testimony of the Holy Spirit is that this is the anointed one. This is the Messiah. This is the one who has been appointed for special service. And lastly, we have then the voice of the Father. There's no mystery. I mean, it's like it's hard to interpret what this voice means. It says this voice comes from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. These same words are spoken later on at the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus is changed in his glory. These same words are spoken. That's in Luke chapter 9. Uh, Lord willing, if I'm around, we'll be here next year in Luke chapter 9. So, but that's where the transfiguration, these same words are spoken. But the, the word comes from the Father. What is the testimony of God? It is that this is my beloved, unique Son, and with Him I am well pleased. Calling Him Son, again, stating Jesus' equality with God. Not that He is His generated Son that He has produced, but that He is my Son. He is of he is the Son of God. We covered this a few weeks ago, that He is like me. He is of essence with me. God declares Jesus to be His Son and says that He is what? He is well pleased with Him. Jesus has been accomplishing the will of God, fulfilling all righteousness, and God says He is pleased with Him. Now, with this pleased with sentiment, who receives it? Who receives the pronouncement from God, with you I am well pleased? the one who has perfectly performed all righteousness. So it kind of goes without saying. God, if a voice were to come out of heaven this morning, and he looks upon us who have not fulfilled all righteousness. This is not spoken to us at this state, right? With whom I am well pleased. All of us as sinners, we do not get the call from the heavens. Here is the one whom I am well pleased. This comes upon the one who has fulfilled all righteousness. Here is one who is like us in our humanity, Jesus born of a woman, yet so different from us in that he has pleased God by living righteously. This is the one lived righteously. He deserves God's blessing. Yet, like I said, described in Galatians 3, he becomes cursed for us who deserve to be cursed so that we can inherit his blessing. The, the word comes, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And it's a word only Jesus could earn. But the good news of the gospel is that that's, what, that's why we love grace. <laughs> that's why we love the mercy of God. Because the reality is none of us in this, under this roof this morning deserve to have God to say to us, you have perfectly done everything you should do. You have fulfilled all righteousness. None of us could say it with a straight face, with an honest heart. We haven't. But there is one who has. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born as a man, fulfills all righteousness. And the voice comes from heaven. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And the gospel goes on to tell us that this Son is going to go on and die on a cross, right? He's going to bear the sins of the world. He's going to resurrect from the dead, conquering over sin and death. So that all who would repent of their sins, confessing themselves as sinners, trusting in Christ, trusting in His work on the cross, trusting in His righteousness, not their own, could be brought into that confession. We could be brought into Christ so that in a very real way, though we do not deserve to have God say, you are my child in whom I am well pleased, though we do not deserve to have that said to us, when we place our faith in Christ, when we are brought into Christ, that blessing becomes ours through faith in Christ. 
the good news of the gospel. Two more testimonies from the person about the person of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father. So, just trying to close up here. What does the baptism of Jesus say to us? Does the, what does the divine confirmation, God has spoken, that Jesus is a Son of God, means for us? It means that what God is doing, what this human Jesus, what this God-man is up to, is real. You know what I, what I need and what I long for is a real God. Something real. We, we live in a world that is so full. I mean, Facebook is just one of, it's so full of these empty platitudes of just positivity and just things that just make you sick to your stomach. So our, our, our Facebook platitudes, the first step to finding happiness is, the, is deciding to find happiness. What does that even mean? That is such barf. But that's the kind of stuff we have out. The first step to finding happiness is to decide you want to find happiness. You know who that is spoken to and that means something to? People with very low barriers to happiness. <laughs> if, if the only hurdle for you to find happiness is just to decide to find happiness, that's a very low hurdle to happiness. What if th- those people, they haven't lost someone they love? Those people, they haven't wrestled with a physical illness. Those people haven't struggled in life. That, that to find happiness is just some simple decision. We don't need platitudes I need something real. I need something real. You need something real. Facebook platitude, sometimes the easiest way to solve a problem is to stop participating in the problem. I, again, I don't even know what that, that doesn't really make sense to me. The first way to solve a problem is to stop participating in the problem. What if your problem is a wayward child? Should you just stop participating? Okay, whatever, see you later. The way to solve that problem is just to kick him to the curb. I'm done with you. You, you know, is that the way we solve this problem? What if the problem is the health issue? How do you kick a health issue to the, pro- to the curb? How do you just, the way, to start, the way to deal with the problem is just, the way to handle some problems is to stop participating. How do you stop participating in a health problem that is yours? Platitudes, garbage, what you need, something real. Jesus goes to the Jordan River Valley in history, in real time, born of a woman. A voice comes while Jesus is going down into the waters and they're all there around. This testimony comes. This voice from heaven comes. Here is my son in whom I am well pleased. Here's what all of these real time, real life testimonies tell us. Our God is not just a God who bloviates. and I, that's a, He just talks a lot. Our God is not just a God who bloviates. I say that, I guess, maybe ironically. <laughs> As I bloviate. (laughs) He's not a God who just bloviates. He is the God who bleeds. He's not the God who just says a bunch of words. He is the God who bleeds. He doesn't bloviate. He bleeds. He doesn't put on a facade. He puts on flesh. Our God doesn't rule from a distance. He serves with his very own incarnation among us. Our God is not a God who just commanded righteousness, but commanded righteousness and then came and fulfilled it for us. And our God sentenced just penalties for sinners and then he came and he bore that penalty in their place. The joy in Christianity, the hope in Christianity is not that it's an interesting viewpoint. It's not that it has a good moral ethic. The joy and the hope of Christianity is that it's real. It's that Jesus is real. 
God became man, confirmed by many testimonies. And this is the bedrock immovable hope for us today. The Holy Spirit gives his witness. The voice of the Father from heaven gives his witness and confirms it. Jesus is God. This man is real and who he is is God. And he's on a mission to redeem and save sinners. He's the God, the Son on a mission to rescue and reconcile all those who will put their hope and trust in him alone. Let's pray. Father, plant deep in us this bedrock security that we don't have a God, that you are not a God who sits far off and makes pithy statements about life, but that you are the God who put on flesh. You are the God who drew near. You are the God who fulfilled the righteous law that you required. You are the God that suffered the penalty that we deserve for breaking your law. You are the God who is real. And I pray that as life throws its innumerable difficulties our ways, our way, we would have hope and peace and confidence in serving a God who is real and a Savior who is real, who died to rescue us and can reconcile us back to you. I pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.